Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and I'm your host. And as always, we are going to get into uh, things politic here in the United States. Although this episode, we are going to uh, dive into uh, black history in this country as it is the first week of Black History Month. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, want to take a moment of personal indulgence here to uh, pass along the fact that the broadcast world has lost a true legend and a, uh, a mentor and just great broadcaster all around. Uh, if you have listened at all to uh, Sirius XM, uh, the channel Urban View, and particularly if you've caught it in the morning, then you have heard the voice of the legendary uh, broadcaster Joe Madison. Well, on February 1st, uh, Joe Madison uh, transitioned after a years-long battle with cancer. Uh, so right now there is an empty spot at the table in the broadcasting world. Uh, you know, if if you've listened to his show at all, and I was a a frequent listener, was one of the people who were on my must listen list uh, as I you know, research my shows and just in general, uh, I spend a lot of time on the road for my day job uh, as a matter of course, and I would listen to Joe Madison. Uh, most days I would come away from his show definitely having learned uh, many things uh, during the course of his broadcast. Uh, also finding myself in very strong agreement with him or uh, very strong disagreement with him. But either way, uh, his show never failed to be informative and on point uh, he very, very much uh, believed in having an honest dialogue. So the people that he brought on to interview on his show, uh, they knew that if they were coming into Joe Madison's house, that they had better come both correct and they had better come prepared. Uh, one of the things that uh, Joe Madison took uh, no brook with was people who spoke without having the facts on their side. Uh, and, you know, true story, I can attest to this, uh, one of the times that I called into his show that I actually got to speak with him, and I was, you know, making my points on the subject that uh, he was discussing, and, you know, I got one of my facts wrong and, you know, went off on a, a segment that was, you know, based on that incorrect information. Uh, Joe cut me off in mid-sentence. Uh, proceeded to give me a lecture about the, what the true facts of the issue were and then hung up on me. Uh, and there are many people who were uh, callers to his show that you know, got similar treatment. If you didn't have your facts straight and with you when you called into his show, uh, you were likely going to get educated and hung up on. Uh, and and that's, just, that's just how uh, he was as a broadcaster. Now, you know, mind you, uh, he was a, a man of great wisdom, great insight, uh, and, you know, overall, uh, very, very passionate 
about uh, the, the important things that were affecting the communities of color, uh, not only in this country, but around the world. Uh, he was definitely someone who was on top of his game, uh, whether he was talking about local area politics in you know, some part of the United States, or if he was talking about a, you know, the global conflicts going on uh, or uh, the crises that were happening in places like Darfur uh, and the Caribbean and, and so forth. Uh, I, let, me, let me read a little bit of the uh, bio that was written about him in USA Today. Uh, and th this came out on uh, Saturday, I believe. And uh, it, it starts off, radio personality and civil rights advocate Joe Madison died this week at age 74, according to his website. Madison, known as the Black Eagle, brought his passion for justice from the civil rights movement to the airwaves. He passed away on Wednesday following a years-long battle with cancer. Uh, Madison spent years working with the NAACP before launching his broadcasting career and became a longtime radio voice in Washington, D.C. According to the NAACP, Madison led voter mobilization efforts, including the successful March for Dignity from Los Angeles to Baltimore. The march collected thousands of signatures for an anti-apartheid bill in Congress. Madison is known for addressing current issues that affect the African-American community. Uh, according to BET, his Sirius XM morning show, Urban View, has a daily audience of approximately 26 million listeners since 2007. Uh, Madison had recently renewed his contract with the network for multiple years. According to Kojo Nmandi of WAMU, uh, in an interview with NBC4 in Washington, uh, quote, he comes from a tradition of activism and he understands that change only occurs when people take part in some form of movement or some form of struggle. Uh, in, in his early life, uh, he became a leader in social justice after college, uh, according to the NAACP. He hosted a community-focused radio show and was a civil rights activist for the NAACP. He spread his message across the airwaves, reaching thousands of listeners in Detroit, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. Uh, he started his radio career in Detroit in 1980, then moved to Philadelphia and eventually to Washington. After appearing on WOL radio station, he joined Sirius XM in 2008. Uh, Joe Madison achieved a Guinness Book World Record for the longest on-air broadcast in 2015, broadcasting for 52 hours straight and raising more than $250,000 for the Smithsonian Nation National Museum of African American History and Culture. He was instrumental in getting legislatures to pass the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act in 2020, the NAACP said, Recently, he executed a 72-day hunger strike in honor of his mentor and activist, Dick Gregory. So uh, he took a break from his daily radio show uh, in order to fight his battle with cancer. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2021, which had spread to different parts of his body. 
However, he was undergoing treatment. Uh, the official cause of his death has not yet been disclosed. Uh, he leaves behind a legacy that will last for generations to come. Surviving him are his devoted wife, Sharon, their four children, five grandchildren, and a great-grandchild. Uh, so, in addition to that article, uh, the family put out this notice uh, in public, and it was on the website, joemadison.com, uh, and it says, and I quote, It is with a heavy heart that we announce the passing of our beloved husband and father, Joe Madison. He passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by family. Joe dedicated his life to fighting for all of those who are undervalued, underestimated, and marginalized. On air, he often posed the question, quote, what are you going to do about it, close quote. Although he's no longer with us, we hope you will join us in answering that call by continuing to be proactive in the fight against injustice. The outpouring of prayers and support over the past few months lifted Joe's spirits and strengthened us as a family. We continue to ask for privacy as we gather together to support each other through this difficult time. And that is signed from the Madison family. Uh, you know, there, there are few true icons uh, in the world. There are people that we, quote, call an icon, but there are uh, very few people and it's very far between to where you come across someone who truly uh, earned uh, that title on a daily basis. Joe Madison was one of those people. Uh, as, as someone who in, in his own little way, in his little corner of the broadcast world, does his part uh, to bring you know, information, understanding, uh, and education to his listeners, uh, I hold great admiration, great respect, and great appreciation for all of the things that Joe Madison has accomplished and great gratitude for all of the education that he gave me personally as well as to his listeners across the United States and around the world. Uh, you know, it, it is a, a, an often used cliche, but in the case of uh, Joe Madison, uh, it is clearly a truism that uh, his like, his uh, someone like him uh, will never be found again. Uh, he was truly one of a kind, a legend, a leader, an inspiration, and someone that we all uh, can look up to. If you want to hear uh, exactly what it is that Joe Madison accomplished on a daily basis, you can go to the uh, Urban View website, uh, either directly or through SiriusXM.com, and uh, listen to you know his uh, his on-demand shows and podcasts. Uh, you can also find them uh, via his website, as I mentioned, uh, JoeMadison.com. Thank you, Joe. Godspeed. Rest in peace. Rest in power. We will truly miss you. Our heartfelt condolences uh, go out to uh, the Madison family 
we will keep you in our prayers uh, and our our wishes for uh, healing and, uh, and recovery as you go through your period of grief. Uh, our, our world is uh, a little diminished for uh, his passing. Um, moving along from that, and you know, it, it in some ways it seems almost irreverent, but I think I could say that um, Joe uh, definitely would have uh, picked up on this and um, made you know his uh, opinion very clearly known. Uh, if you were following the uh, the last primary in New Hampshire, uh, 45th president, Donald Trump won that primary uh, by a handy margin. And um, there was, of course, the um, perfunctory uh, victory speech. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that happened at that speech. But before I do, uh, I want to play a clip from uh, Malcolm X in 1963 that kind of sets the tone for for what I want to say uh, and uh, it, it's pretty self-explanatory but uh, take a listen to the clip and then we'll talk more about it on the other side Slavery, when black people like me talk to the slave they didn't kill him they sent some old house negro along behind him to undo what he said. You have to read the history of slavery to understand this. There were two kinds of negroes. There was that old house negro and the field negro. And the house negro always looked out for his master. When the field negroes got too much out of line, he held them back in check. He put them back on the plantation. The house negro could afford to do that because he lived better than the field negro. He ate better, he dressed better, and he lived in a better house. He lived right up next to his master in the attic or the basement. He ate the same food his master ate and wore his same clothes. And he could talk just like his master. master. Good diction. And he loved his master more than his master loved himself. That's why he didn't want his master hurt. If the master got sick, he'd say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. When the master's house caught a fire, he'd try and put the fire out. He didn't want his master's house burned. He never wanted his master's property threatened, and he was more defensive of it than the master was. That was the house Negro. But then you had some field Negroes who lived in huts, had nothing to lose. They wore the worst kind of clothes, they ate the worst food, and they caught hell. They felt the sting of the lash. They hated their master. Oh, yes, they did. If the master got sick, they prayed that the master died. <laughs> If the master's house caught a fire, they prayed for a strong wind to come along. This was the difference between the two. And today you still have house Negroes and field Negroes. Yeah. I'm a field Negro. So that was an excerpt from a speech given by Haj Malik al-Shabazz, otherwise known as Malcolm X, in 1963. That's 61, 61 years ago. Uh, and uh, he was describing uh, so-called house Negroes 
uh, versus field Negroes. And if you listen to that, that excerpt, you know, in detail and uh, place in your mind images of some of the um, voices we have been hearing over the last few years uh, from the Republican side of the aisle uh, for with uh, candidates of color, um, you know, and you can pick out, you know, four or five uh, uh, people who would probably fit very well uh, Malcolm's description uh, that he gave in that excerpt. Uh, that I, I wanted to play that clip as kind of a, a backgrounder for uh, what I, I am uh, moving forward into. Uh, I want to place uh, a candidate in nomination here in 2024. Uh, it's not for president. Uh, it's not for a senator or for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. It's not for a governor. It's not for a state senator or a state legislator or state dog catcher. I want to place a nomination, my candidate, for the Step and Fetch It House Negro Award for 2024 to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Now, we just completed, uh, you know, uh, more than a week ago, the uh, Republican primary in New Hampshire. And I don't know if you uh, followed the, the details of it. Uh, you know, of course, a, as expected, Donald Trump uh, won that primary by a wide margin. And as a result, of course, the perfunctory victory speech was given. Well, in that speech, uh, there was uh, a uh, conversation between, you know, the former president and the aforementioned Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Now, I'm going to play another clip of that uh, little snippet of conversation back and forth uh, between the two. And I want you to listen very carefully to what Senator Scott said. So here is uh, the clip, and then we will come back and uh, tie all of it together uh, after. Two great senators. Which is hard. I mean, did you ever think that she actually appointed you, Tim? And think of it, appointed, and you're the senator of his state, and she endorsed me. You must really hate her. No, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. No, that's, that's why he's a great politician. That's why he's a great politician. Did you hear that? And the, the visual of it uh, is even more uh, offensive uh, as, you know, Tim, Senator Tim Scott, sitting senator in the United States Senate, uh, stepped up to the mic, put a big grin on his face and said those words to uh, the former president uh, in public and, you know, to the applause of the uh, mostly white crowd uh, there at the victory speech in New Hampshire. Um, you know, it, in, in my opinion, uh, Tim Scott, with that action, uh, actually did damage to the, the image of uh, black people in this country single-handedly. Uh, I'm sorry. 
that was shameful. And I'm not the only one that feels that way. Uh, an article that came out in Salon uh, the, the day after or a couple of days after said, and uh, again, uh, this is uh, Tim Scott mocked for reaching new depth of self-abasement for Trump. The humiliation is so naked. Uh, and, you know, they cite the comment, I just love you, South Carolina Senator professed to Donald Trump. Uh, and it goes on to say, critics are ripping former presidential candidate and Senator Tim Scott, a Republican of South Carolina, over his praise-filled exchange with Donald Trump during the former president's Tuesday remarks in New Hampshire, with many emphasizing how, quote, humiliating, close quote, Scott's admiring comments to Trump were. Uh, quote, it was humiliating to watch what Tim Scott did as a sitting senator, close quote. And that's according to Reverend Al Sharpton, a civil rights leader. Uh, and then he said that during an appearance on the Morning Joe program on uh, MSNBC. Uh, and at one time, continuing the quote, he wasn't even on the script. He interrupted Trump to pay homage uh, in, in Nashua. New Hampshire, Trump asked Scott if he ever thought opposing candidate Nikki Haley, uh, his last notable uh, foe in the race for the GOP nomination, actually supported him. You know, and, you know, Trump said, quote, you're the, the senator of her state and and, you know, she endorsed me. You must really hate her, the former president said. And that's when Scott interjected, I just love you. And Trump responded with, uh, with a grin to the crowd. That's why he's a great politician. And the crowd uh, burst out into applause at that. Um, Al Sharpton continued with, quote, There are few moments in my life when I've been more embarrassed than to watch Tim Scott. You know, I know Tim and I are both practicing Christians, but I don't know if he could pray like that to the other side. Um, it's not a good day in my life to watch Scott do that. To think that we fought to see people like him, black, become high elected in the South. And he has, you know, he has a right to be Republican. He has a right to endorse Donald Trump. But do it in such a way that is, uh, that is, I'm sorry, but to do it in such a way that is so humiliating was troubling. Sharpton said, let's put it that way. I'm going to try to be as nice as I can. So, you know, and, and it's not just, um, you know, Al Sharpton that is saying that. Uh, according to Dartmouth professor Jeff Sharplett, quote, I hold Tim Scott in contempt, but the depth of self-abasement here is hard to look at. Uh, you know, and uh, Tara Setmeyer, a senior advisor of the Lincoln Project and former Republican operative wrote on X, formerly Twitter, who's worse, Trump or his court jester enablers? You know, and, and it goes on and on. Um, you know, uh, Joe Scarbo from uh, Morning Joe and MSNBC goes, and my God, who is Tim Scott? Uh, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you know, and the, the other host chimed in, and who is Tim Scott? 
He's supporting a guy right now who defended Nazis in Charlottesville, Scarborough continued. He's defending a guy that supports the replacement theory. He's defending a guy and, and defending a guy happily that's easily the most racist president in our lifetimes. And, you know, it, it continues on. You know, more and more people have uh, publicly expressed their disdain for the comments made by Tim Scott. And I am among them. Uh, as I said, um, he is my nominee for the Step and Fetch It House Negro Award for 2024. And for those of you, uh, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Zers who may not be familiar with uh, the character of Step and Fetch It, uh, look it up. He Step and Fetch It was an a uh, actor and comedian in the vaudeville days. Uh, on the early days of uh, stage, uh, and his his stock and trade was the the shuffle and jive uh, stereotypical image of you know black people that were held by many uh, white people in the the forties and fifties uh, you know on on uh, stages across the country, so. You know, to to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, um, all I can say, no, not all I can say, but what I will say is shame on you. Uh, I, I don't care that you support Donald Trump. More power to you for supporting him. I, I really could care less about who anybody supports in a political campaign. I know who I support. And, you know, it's obviously it's not Donald Trump. Um, you know, and I have my problems with Joe Biden as well. So, you know, let, let's let's just uh, as, as Joe Madison would say, let's put it where the goats can get it. Uh, Tim Scott, uh, what you did debased yourself. It debased your Senate seat. Uh, it debased the Senate and really served no other purpose than to and, and not to put too fine a point on it to suck up to someone who maybe uh, might select you to be his running mate uh, as vice president in the upcoming election on the 24th. Uh, and, and to Republicans out there, um, you know, you may think that Tim Scott is, you know, someone that is appealing to you. Uh, you may like his political positions. You may like his opinions. But you know, to the large scale, uh, large uh, swath of, you know, black Americans or people of color in this country who are voters, uh, what Tim Scott represents is nothing short of the epitome of being a sellout. And, you know, as I said, I have, you know, very, very poor respect for Tim Scott, other than the fact that he is a sitting U.S. senator and demands uh, some men, uh, modicum of uh, respect for his position. As for the person, uh, he's a joke. Uh, I really, really feel that. And, you know, just just to be clear, these opinions are mine. They are not the opinions of WJMS Media, its owners or managers. 
Uh, it is solely the opinion of the host. That's me. Uh, Tim Scott, uh, go somewhere and sit down. You were a failed presidential candidate, uh, and your performance on that stage in New Hampshire really, really hurt you uh, and your reputation uh, as a, uh, a leader in this country. And that's all I'm going to say about it. All right, we're going to take a breath, regain some composure, uh, and uh, we'll take our break here. When we come back, uh, this is uh, Black History Month. Uh, it is the, the first week. And uh, in the second half of the show, uh, I want to bring you some information on the, the positive contributions that uh, black people have made to this country over the last 200 years. Uh, you know, it's you know, said many times uh, that black history is American history. And, you know, throughout that history, uh, inventors and uh, you know, thinkers of that time have contributed great things to this country in terms of its prosperity, its security and safety, uh, and you know everything uh, that goes into day-to-day uh, -day living here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So when we come back after the break, we're going to take a look at some inventions and discoveries that were made by black people in this country over the last 200 years that uh, have moved this country forward, have improved the day-to-day -day lives of all of the citizens of this country, regardless of race, uh, regardless of their, their status. So we'll take our break. And when we come back, we're going to get into uh, the inventions of uh, African Americans in the United States. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast, and this is Steve, and we're on WJMS Media, and we'll be right back. I always had to be so good, no one could ignore me. Carve my path with data and drive. But some people only see who I am on paper. The paper ceiling. The limitations from degree screens to stereotypes that are holding back over 70 million stars. Workers skilled through alternative routes rather than a bachelor's degree. It's time for skills to speak for themselves. Find resources for breaking through barriers at tearthepaperceiling.org. Brought to you by Opportunity at Work and the Ad Council. And we're back. We're back here on the Fired Up podcast. And uh, as we go through the timeline of African-American history, the high points uh, here in the United States, um, as the 19th century came to an end and segregation uh, was uh, exercising an even stronger hold in the South, uh, many African-Americans saw self-improvement, especially through education as the single greatest opportunity to escape the indignities they had suffered. Among the icons that people of the era looked to uh, were people like Booker T. Washington, uh, who as president of Alabama's Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, he urged black Americans to acquire the kind of industrial or vocational training, such as farming, mechanics, and domestic service, that would give them the necessary skills to carve out a niche for themselves in the U.S. economy. George Washington Carver, who was another formerly enslaved man and the head of Tuskegee's Agriculture Department, uh, helped liberate its South from its reliance on cotton 
by convincing farmers to plant peanuts, soybeans, and sweet potatoes in order to rejuvenate the exhausted soil of the South. In 1909, uh, we saw the founding of the NAACP, uh, which was led by uh, the prominent black educator W.E.B. Du Bois. This was born in the Niagara Movement, which met in 1908 in, uh, Niag in Niagara Falls, Canada. And also uh, Marcus Garvey, who was a black nationalist leader, founded his Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, U-N-I-A, in Jamaica in 1914, and two years later brought it to the United States. Uh, he was a, in, in opposition to a lot of the principles that were being discussed by Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, and there were several uh, debates and uh, back and forth between the leaders. You know, he was the subject of frequent criticism by W.E.B. Du Bois of the NAACP uh, and uh, received criticism for his, quote, back to Africa movement. Uh, he also was openly contemptuous of Du Bois and uh, the NAACP in return at one point claiming that his movement had uh, more than six million followers, which was probably exaggerated. But uh, even his critics admitted that he had uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a half a million members uh, in 1923 in that time frame. In the 1920s, we moved from sort of a, a political and sociological resistance uh, to areas of entertainment, which is an area that, uh, you know, African Americans believed uh, they could achieve success. Uh, ultimately, this led to something known as the Harlem Renaissance uh, in and around the 1920s, uh, which got its start in New York City, uh, but became, you know, widespread movement in cities throughout the North and West, uh, also known as the Black Renaissance or the New Negro Movement. Uh, it marked the first time that mainstream publishers and critics turned their attention seriously to African-American literature, music, art, and politics. Uh, it uh, demonstrated that you know, it, it was a new layer of contribution that African-Americans were making to uh, America in the early uh, 1900s. Uh, even though you know, many of the audiences uh, outside of the uh, black enclaves such as uh, you know, New York, specifically Harlem and Chicago and, and other places like that. Uh, it also achieved a uh, wide liking and a wide following among white audiences as well. As, well. Uh, as we moved into the middle 1900s uh, and the breakout of World War II, uh, African-Americans were ready to fight for what you know, President Roosevelt called the four freedoms, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Uh, even though you know, they lacked those uh, freedoms at home. During the course of the war, more than three million black Americans would register for service with some 500,000 seeing action overseas. Uh, so e even though they were from a country that did not see them as uh, equals or 
you know, uh, equally capable, uh, they more than proved themselves uh, in World War II with uh, such activities as the successes of the Tuskegee Airmen, who saw combat against German and Italian troops, flew more than 3,000 missions, and served as a great source of pride for many black Americans. They were, you know, led by um, their commander, Captain Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., uh, later, who later would become uh, one of the first African-American generals and, you know, achieved, you know, recognition uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world while still suffering under the yoke of segregation and Jim Crow when they returned home. Uh, sports was another area where the contributions of African-Americans uh, came uh, more to the forefront. Uh, in 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first uh, black player to play in the major baseball leagues, otherwise known as uh, crossing the color line. And he uh, you know, played his first game with the Dodgers on April 15th, 1947. Um, you know, earning several records that year, including Rookie of the Year honors. Over the next nine years, uh, he batted a uh, .311 batting average and led the Dodgers to six league championships and one World Series victory. Yet still, he, you know, was, like many uh, African Americans at the time, still uh, burdened by the the weight and and problems of racism, segregation, and Jim Crow laws while here in the South. Um, in other things, as we cross into the middle of the 19th century, in 1954, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court delivered its verdict in Brown v. Board of Education, ruling unanimously that racial segregation in public schools violated the 14th Amendment's mandate of equal protection of the laws of the U.S. Constitution to any person within its jurisdiction. This landmark verdict reversed the separate but equal doctrine the court had established with Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, in which it determined that the equal protection was not violated as long as reasonably equal conditions were provided to, bro to both groups. In the Brown decision, Chief Justice Earl Warren famously declared that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. So, you know, here we now see African Americans uh, starting to accrue uh, some of the political victories and, and some of the legal victories that would lay the groundwork for a lot of the uh, things that we are going through here. Um, the, the history of our people in the United States, you know, was marred with uh, tragedies, as we all well know. Um, in August 1955, uh, a 14-year-old black kid from Chicago named Emmett Till uh, was uh, brutally uh, killed and uh, his body was, was desecrated in, in numerous ways uh, simply under the, uh, the allegation that he had uh, whistled or made some type of uh, sexist uh, remarks to a white woman uh, that was in an elevator with him. 
the woman's husband and his half-brother uh, dragged Emmett Till from his great-uncle's house in the middle of the night. Uh, he was beaten. His body was mutilated. He was shot several times, and his body was thrown into the Tallahatchie River. Uh, they, the, the two men confessed to kidnapping Till, but were acquitted of murder charges by an all-white, all-male jury after barely, barely an hour of deliberations. Uh, so the, the Till murder and subsequent treatment uh, with the justice system, again, shows a, a stark parallel to you know, recent news stories. You know, one thinks of uh, uh, George, For George Floyd and um, others that just showed the mistreatment of you know, black people uh, and, and people of color in general uh, here in the United States and the unfair treatment uh, of the justice system in, in some of these cases. Uh, 1955 saw uh, what is considered the birth of the civil rights movement post-Emmett uh, Till incident. Rosa Parks, riding a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, was told to give up her seat to a white man. Uh, according to the report, she refused and was arrested for violating the city's racial segregation ordinances uh, that mandated that black passengers sit in the back of public buses and give up their seats for white riders if the front seats were full. So, you know, the, the arrest of uh, Ms. Parks led to the organization of a boycott of the city's municipal bus company uh, by the Montgomery, Montgomery Improvement Association, which was led by a young pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, since African Americans made up 70% of the bus company's riders at the time, and the great majority of Montgom Montgomery's black citizens supported the bus boycott, uh, its impact was immediate. Found guilty of obstructing uh, the operation of a business uh, King appealed the decision, but the boycott stretched on for more than a year. The bus company struggled to avoid bankruptcy. On November 13, 1956, in Browder v. Gale, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a lower court's decision declaring the bus company's segregation seating policy unconstitutional under the 14th uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, King called off the boycott on December 20th, and Rosa Parks, uh, now known as the, quote, mother of the civil rights movement, close quote, would be one of the first to ride on the newly desegregated bustle, buses. In 1957, a uh, high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, became the center of national focus when uh, the governor of the state at the time uh, made his uh, desegregation platform, which was part of his re-election campaign, uh, and after the federal court ordered the deseg desegregation of Central High School, located in the state capital of Little Rock, Governor Favis called out the Arkansas National Guard to prevent nine African-American students from entering the school. He was later forced to call off the guard, and in the tense standoff that followed, TV cameras captured footage of white mobs converging on the Little Rock Nine, as they became known, outside of the high school. 
For millions of viewers throughout the country, the unforgettable images provided a vivid contrast between the angry forces of white supremacy and the quiet, dignified resistance of African-American students. President Eisenhower federalized the state's National Guard and sent 1,000 members of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division to enforce the integration of Central High School. So the students entered the school under heavily armed guard, marking the first time since Reconstruction that federal troops have provided protection for black Americans against racial violence. Uh, although the governor closed all of Little Rock's high schools in the fall of 1958 rather than permit integration, a federal court struck down this act and four of the nine students returned under police protection after the schools were reopened in 1959. Uh, in the same year, 1958, we had the first uh, interracial uh, couples legally married in the United States, and uh, their union marked a pivotal moment in marriage rights for mixed-race families. Um, at 2 a.m. on July 11, 1958, Mildred Jeter was lying next to her husband, Richard Loving, when the police began knocking on their door, demanding to know about the nature of their relationship. At the time, interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia, and the newlywed couple were guilty of breaking the law. Richard spent the night in prison, and his sister had to pay a $1,000 bond for uh, his release. Mildred, however, spent three nights in a small woman's cell and was released to her father. The couple was then given a choice, spend 25 years in prison or leave Virginia. They chose exile and abandoned the state for nine years, making periodic trips back to visit family while trying to avoid being detected. So we'll break our journey uh, on the timeline of uh, African-American history in the United States uh, right here. We're going to pick it up with part two coming in next week's podcast, where we're going to open up with uh, the 1960s, which was probably the most tumultuous, most uh, significant, and most uh, foundational for much of the uh, political and social and economic struggles that we are going through uh, today here in the United States. So we'll pick this up. Make sure you uh, tune into next week's podcast to pick up part two of african-american history in the united states here on fired up right now we're going to uh turn the page a little bit and go to uh some other uh history uh specifically we're going to look at how um, black americans have influenced uh everyday lives here in this country uh not through what they say but through what they build so uh, we'll get started with that right now. So if someone asked you to name uh, five inventions that were uh, created by African-American inventors uh, in this country, could you? Well, we're going to go through and hit the high points in a list of more than 120 things you probably didn't know were created by black inventors. I'll post a list to the article on the Facebook page, but as I said, I'm going to go through um, and try and get through as many as possible, but we're going to hit the high points uh, of 120 things that were invented by black Americans that you may not have known about. 
number one was something called the folding cabinet bed what might be uh, more accurately described or as it is described today as uh, a sofa bed you know or a fold-out bed uh, and this was invented in 1885 by a woman named Sarah Good and she was also the first black woman to receive a US patent she came up with an industry changing idea uh, that was intended to bring more residents uh, with limited living space into her store. Uh, here's one, and I guarantee, I'm pretty sure you're going to be surprised at this. So the next time you're watching that sporting uh, event and you reach over for that, that, those uh, bag of potato chips, uh, thank George Crumb, African-American who was working at a chef at a resort in New York. A customer complained that his French fries weren't good, and he, in, in an irritated fit, he cut the potatoes as thinly as possible, fried them until they were burnt crisps, and threw a generous handful of salt on top. The rest is history. Of course, uh, you may have heard or learned in school that the gas mask was invented by Garrett Morgan, uh, which was uh, the first where uh, the the hood went over the head, featured tubes connected to uh, a device that filtered out smoke and provided fresh oxygen. Philippi e. Downing invented what is called a protective mailbox, uh, basically the uh, forerunner of the mailboxes we have now where you have the outer door uh, that can open in an inner safe safety door to prevent parcels from being stolen. Charles Richard Drew so the next time you or the, the first time or whenever that you are uh, looking at some type of surgery where uh, you need to have either a blood transfusion or blood uh, added back into your system. Uh, Charles Drew uh, was the person who discovered the method of separating red blood cells from plasma and then storing the two components separately. This process allowed uh, blood to be stored for more than a week, which was the maximum at that time. And he received pa uh, patents for that. Uh, getting the wrinkles out of your clothes. African-American woman invented uh, or improved on the design of the ironing board. An African-American nurse named Mary Van Britten Brown devised an early security unit for her own home. She and her husband took out a patent for the system the same year, and they were awarded the patent three years later. In 1969, home security systems commonly used today took various elements from her design. Another one you may have heard about in school, uh, the traffic lights that we have now, you know, red, yellow, green, uh, was invented by Garrett Morgan in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, after he witnessed a severe car accident at an intersection in the city. The next time you go shopping and you are getting some uh, refrigerated groceries or frozen food, you can thank Frederick McKinley Jones, who created the roof-mounted cooling system used to refrigerate goods on trucks during extended transportation in the mid-1930s. He received a patent for his invention in 1940 and co-founded the U.S. Thermo Control Company, later known as Thermoking. Uh, a black man named Alexander Miles took out a patent in 1887 for a mechanism that automatically opens and closes 
uh, elevator doors. The, the microphone that I am using to record this, as well as others, uh, was invented by Dr. James E. West, who co-invented the foil electric microphone, which was less expensive to produce than the typical used condenser microphones. And for all you techies out there, you can thank Mark Dean for co-inventing the color monitor. Uh, without that, we'd still be typing and reading things in a disgusting-looking green color. And it, it isn't all tech and, and inventions. Uh, Lonnie Johnson, uh, an aerospace engineer for NASA, he was the inventor of the super soaker. Mary Davison invented both the tissue holder while disabled from multiple sclerosis. And of course, you know, we know that George Washington Carver was the one who invented peanut butter. George T. Sampson created the clothes dryer in 1892. For those, you know, who still, you know, mechanically sweep their floors, who don't have, you know, a, a robot doing it, uh, Lloyd Ray uh, developed and invented and patented the dustpan, a folding chair created by, Jane, by John Purdy, uh, used at picnics and school graduations everywhere. Here's one for all you duffers out there. Uh, the golf tee was invented by Dr. George Grant. And the ice cream scooper, Alfred L. Crawl, invented the ice cream scooper, allowing kids to have larger scoops than spoon fills. Yay, yay, yay. <laughs> Joseph A. Smith uh, helped dads everywhere keep their grass green while allowing his kids a fun toy to jump around with was his, his invention called the lawn sprinkler. Thomas Elkins, you can thank him for that porcelain throne in your bathroom uh, as he invented the modern toilet. Thomas W. Stewart invented the mop. A reversible baby stroller, what that means is one where the seat, the seat back flips back to front uh, was invented by William Richardson and also had independent wheels. All right, here's one I'll throw in there. Um, William Dorsey Swan is highly regarded as the first drag queen in the United States. Just throwing that out there. So, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of things. Um, a serving tray walker, which, uh, you know, basically the push cart uh, that you you put there, airplane airplane propellers were uh, designed and, and refined by James S. Adams. A bis biscuit cutter, that round uh, circular cutter that uh, makes those great biscuits. The coin changer was James A. Bauer. Oh, by the way, the biscuit cutter was A. P. Ashbourne. The rotary engine was invented by Andrew Beard. And again, these are all African American. Stainless steel pads was courtesy of Alfred Benjamin. The torpedo discharger, H. Bradbury, developed that me mechanism uh, used and, and you know, still in use in, in an advanced form on today's submarines. Uh, disposable syringe was invented by Phil Brooks. Uh, cotton planter and a corn planter was invented by Henry Bear. Street sweepers were uh, invented by C.B. Brooks. Uh, the horseshoe was invented by Oscar Brown. The train alarm, R.A. Butler. Like I said, there, there's more than 120 of these. 
I will you know post this on the website uh, lotions and soaps uh, George Washington Carver for those of you uh, fishers out there automatic fishing reel George Cook the printing press W.A. Lavalette uh, every time you lick an envelope uh, when you're getting ready to mail a letter you can thank F.W. Leslie for the envelope seal the fire extinguisher was invented by Tom J. Marshall the hairbrush by Lyda Newman the blimp J.F. Pickering the fountain pen and the hand stamp were invented by W.B. Purvis. The process for refining sugar was invented by N. Ryu, And the cellular phone was invented by Harry Sampson. Artists like Slash and Prince, uh, Jimi Hendrix and others can thank Robert Fleming Jr., the inventor of the guitar. On those hot nights in the summertime, you can thank Frederick M. Jones for his invention, the air conditioning unit. And Mr. Jones also gave us the two-cycle gas engine, the internal combustion engine, and starter generator and refrigeration controls. And one of the probably one of the most prolific black American inventors, Granville T. Woods, invented the telephone transmitter, the electric cutoff switch, the relay instrument, the telephone system, an electromechanical brake, a galvanic battery, and the roller coaster. And did you know that the space shuttle retrieval arm was invented by black American William Harwell? So those are just a few of the inventions that have come from the minds of uh, black Americans over the, uh, the years uh, here in America. Uh, just think of all the things you would not be able to do if these uh, individuals had not exercised that brain power and brought these products uh, to market, to design by design and, and patented them. So, you know, the next time you hit a golf shot straight down the fairway, you can thank, you know, a, a black person. Uh, or when you get that wrinkled shirt and get it all nice and, and pressed out, neat and smooth, you can thank an African-American. Uh, so we are not just in this country, we are a part of this country. So when we talk about how African-American history is American history, this is part of what we're talking about. The contributions made by our forebearers into what American society and standard of living and, and all of the things that we take for granted every day that were invented by, you know, african-americans in this country so there you have it contributions to uh, the greatness of this country that were made by the descendants of uh, african slaves uh, brought to this country uh, in the 1600s and who continue to provide growth and opportunity and advancement to many things that uh, we take for granted every day. Uh, and, you know, this is Black History Month, so of course we're focusing on the contributions of African Americans to the United States. But the United States is a country of, uh, you know, immigrants. We have people who have come from Asia, from Latin America, from, you know, Hispanic countries, 
from uh, Irish countries, from English countries, from Greek, you know, you name it. We have people that have come here from all over the world who have contributed mightily to the things that make America the great nation that it is. And we should not take that for granted or marginalize it. Uh, it, it is you know, part of our history. It's part of our heritage. It's part of what makes America, America. And you know, if there are those out there who are denigrating, you know, in, in particular this month as we're talking about black history, are denigrating the contributions of black people to this country, use the, the inventions and the, the things that were created uh, by the hands of uh, the descendants of African slaves here in this country uh, as your talking points, you know, and uh, make sure that you are uh, expressing that, you know, there is uh, a, a debt of gratitude that this country owes to its immigrant uh, communities. And uh, we need to make sure that we are talking about that. Well, that's going to wrap up this show for this week. Uh, we'll bring you more uh, key points, uh, key facts, and key information uh, regarding uh, Black History Month throughout the month of February. Uh, and you know, we will continue, of course, to uh, keep you up and date, up to date, rather, on the news of the day as it goes on. That's going to do it. Thank you all, as always, for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you have comments, please send them to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I love to get your thoughts and uh, comments, both pro and con, uh, about the show. So uh, definitely reach out, uh, shoot an email. And uh, with that being said, I will uh, say goodbye for this week, and I look forward to to continuing our discussion in seven days.